The second Tuesday, we talk about feeling sorry for yourself. I came back the next Tuesday, and for many Tuesdays that followed. I looked forward to these visits more than one would think, considering I was flying 700 miles to sit alongside a dying man, but I seemed to slip into a time warp when I visited Maury, and I liked myself better when I was there. I no longer rented a cellular phone for the rides from the airport. Let them wait, I told myself, mimicking Maury. The newspaper situation in Detroit had not improved. In fact, it had grown increasingly insane, with nasty confrontations between picketers and replacement workers, people arrested, beaten, lying in the street in front of delivery trucks. In light of all this, my visits with Maury felt like a cleansing rinse of human kindness. We talked about life. We talked about love. We talked about one of Maury's favorite subjects, compassion, and why our society had such a shortage of it. Before my third visit, I stopped at a market called Bread and Circus. I'd seen their bags in Maury's house, and I figured he must like the food there, so I loaded up with plastic containers from their fresh food takeaway, things like vermicelli with vegetables and carrot soup and baklava. When I entered Maury's study, I lifted the bags as if I'd just robbed a bank. Food man, I bellowed. Maury rolled his eyes and smiled. Meanwhile, I looked for signs of the disease's progression. His fingers worked well enough to write with a pencil or hold up his glasses, but he could not lift his arms much higher than his chest. He was spending less and less time in the kitchen or living room and more in the study, where he had a large reclining chair set up with pillows, blankets, and specially cut pieces of foam rubber that held his feet and gave support to his withered legs. He kept a bell near his side, and when his head needed adjusting, or he had to go on the commode, as he referred to it, he would shake the bell and his small army of home care workers would come in. It wasn't always easy for him to lift the bell, and he got frustrated when he couldn't make it work. I asked Maury if he felt sorry for himself. Sometimes, in the morning, he said, that's when I mourn. I feel around my body. I move my fingers and my hands, whatever I can still move. And I mourn what I've lost. I mourn the slow, insidious way in which I'm dying. But then I stop mourning. Just like that, I said. I give myself a good cry if I need it. But then I concentrate on all the good things still in my life on the people who are coming to see me, on the stories I'm going to hear, on you, if it's Tuesday, because we're Tuesday people. I grinned, Tuesday people. Mitch Morey said, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than that. A little each morning, a few tears, and that's all. I thought about all the people I knew who spent many of their waking hours feeling sorry for themselves. How useful it would be to put a daily limit on self-pity. Just a few tearful minutes on with the day. And if Maury could do it with such a horrible disease, well. Maury said, it's only horrible if you see it that way, Mitch. It's horrible to watch my body slowly wilt away to nothing. But it's also wonderful because of all the time I get to say goodbye. He smiled. Not everyone is so lucky. I studied him in his chair, unable to stand, to wash, to pull on his pants. Lucky, I thought. Did he really say lucky? During a break when Maury had to use the bathroom, I leafed through the Boston newspaper that sat near his chair. There was a story about a small timber town where two teenage girls tortured and killed the 73-year-old man who'd befriended them, then threw a party in his trailer home and showed off the corpse. There was another story about the upcoming trial of a straight man who killed a gay man after the latter had gone on a TV talk show and said he had a crush on him. I put the paper away. Maury was rolled back in, smiling as always and Connie went to lift him from the wheelchair to the recliner. You want me to do that, I asked. 
There was a momentary silence, and I'm not even sure why I offered. But Maury looked at Connie and said, Can you show him how to do it? Sure, Connie said. Following her instructions, I leaned over, locked my forearms under Maury's armpits, and hooked him towards me, as if lifting a large log from underneath. Then I straightened up, hoisting him as I rose. Now normally when you lift someone, you expect their arms to tighten around your grip. But Maury could not do this. He was mostly dead weight. And I felt his head bounce softly on my shoulder, and his body sag against me like a big damp loaf. Ah, he softly groaned. I gotcha, I gotcha, I said. Holding him like that moved me in a way I cannot describe, except to say I felt the seeds of death inside his shriveling frame. And as I laid him in his chair, adjusting his head on the pillows, I had the coldest realization that our time was running out, and I had to do something. It is my junior year, 1978, when disco and Rocky movies are the cultural rage. We are in an unusual sociology class at Brandeis, something Maury calls group process. Each week we study the ways in which the students in the group interact with one another, how they respond to anger, jealousy, attention. We're human lab rats. More often than not, someone ends up crying. I refer to it as the touchy-feely course. Maury says I should be more open-minded. On this day, Maury says he has an exercise for us to try. We are to stand facing away from our classmates and fall backward, relying on another student to catch us. Most of us are uncomfortable with this, and we cannot let go for more than a few inches before stopping ourselves. We laugh in embarrassment. Finally, one student, a thin, quiet, dark-haired girl whom I noticed almost always wears bulky white fisherman sweaters, crosses her arms over her chest, closes her eyes, leans back, and does not flinch, like one of those Lipton tea commercials where the model splashes into the pool. For a moment, I'm sure she's going to thump on the floor. At the last instant, her assigned partner grabs her head and shoulders and yanks her up harshly. Whoa, several students yell. Some even clap. Maury finally smiles. You see, he says to the girl, you closed your eyes. And that was the difference. Sometimes you can't believe what you see. You have to believe what you feel. And if you are ever going to have other people trust you, you must feel that you can trust them too. Even when you're in the dark. Even when you're falling. The third Tuesday, we talk about regrets. The next Tuesday, I arrive with the normal bags of food, pasta with corn, potato salad, apple cobbler, and something else, a Sony tape recorder. I want to remember what we talk about, I told Maury. I want to have your voice so I can listen to it later. When I'm dead, he said. Don't say that. He laughed. Mitch, I'm going to die, and sooner, not later. He regarded the new machine. So big, he said. I felt intrusive, as reporters often do, and I began to think that a tape machine between two people who were supposedly friends was a foreign object, an artificial ear. With all the people clamoring for his time, perhaps I was trying to take too much from these Tuesdays. Listen, I said, packing up the recorder. We don't have to use this. If it makes you uncomfortable, he stopped me, wagged a finger, then hooked his glasses off his nose, letting them dangle on the string around his neck. He looked me square in the eye. Put it down, he said. I put it down. Mitch, he continued softly now. You don't understand. I want to tell you about my life. I want to tell you before I can't tell you anymore. His voice dropped to a whisper. I want someone to hear my story. Will you? I nodded. We sat quietly for a moment. So, he said, is it turned on? 
Now, the truth is, that tape recorder was more than nostalgia. I was losing Maury. We were all losing Maury, his family, his friends, his ex-students, his fellow professors, his pals from the political discussion group that he loved so much, his former dance partners. All of us were losing Maury. And I suppose tapes, like photographs and videos, are a desperate attempt to steal something from death's suitcase. But it was also becoming clear to me, through his courage, his humor, his patience, and his openness, that Maury was looking at life from some very different place than anyone else I knew. A healthier place. A more sensible place. And he was about to die. If some mystical clarity of thought came when you looked death in the eye, then I knew Maury wanted to share it. And I wanted to remember it for as long as I could. The first time I saw Maury on Nightline, I wondered what regrets he had once he knew his death was imminent. Did he lament lost friends? Would he have done much differently? Selfishly, I wondered if I were in his shoes, would I be consumed with sad thoughts of all that I had missed? Would I regret the secrets I had kept hidden? When I mentioned this to Maury, he nodded. It's what everyone worries about, isn't it, he said. What if today were my last day on earth? He studied my face and perhaps he saw an ambivalence about my own choices. I had this vision of me keeling over at my desk one day, halfway through a story, my editors snatching the copy even as the medics carried my body out. Mitch, Maury said. I shook my head and said nothing, but Maury picked up on my hesitation. Mitch, the culture doesn't encourage you to think about such things until you're about to die. We're so wrapped up with egotistical things, career, family, having enough money, meeting the mortgage, getting a new car, fixing the radiator when it breaks. We're involved in trillions of little acts just to keep going. So we don't get into the habit of standing back and looking at our lives and saying, is this all? Is this all I want? Is something missing? You need someone to probe you in that direction. It won't just happen automatically. I knew what he was saying. We all need teachers in our lives. And mine was sitting right in front of me. Fine, I figured. If I was to be the student, then I would be as good a student as I could be. On the plane ride home that day, I made a small list on a yellow legal pad. Issues and questions that we all grapple with, from happiness to aging to having children and even to death. Of course, there were a million self-help books on these subjects, and plenty of cable TV shows and $90 per hour consultation sessions. America had become a Persian bazaar of self-help, but there still seemed to be no clear answers. Do you take care of others or take care of your inner child? Return to traditional values or reject tradition as useless? Seek success or seek simplicity? Just say no or just do it. All I knew was this. Maury, my old professor, wasn't in the self-help business. He was standing on the tracks, listening to death's locomotive whistle, and he was very clear about the important things in life. I wanted that clarity. Every confused and tortured soul I knew wanted that clarity. Ask me anything, Maury always said. So I wrote this list on the plane. Death, fear, aging, greed, marriage, family, society, forgiveness, and a meaningful life. The list was in my bag when I returned to West Newton for the fourth time, a Tuesday in late August, when the air conditioning at the Logan Airport terminal was not working, and people fanned themselves and wiped sweat angrily from their foreheads, and every face I saw looked ready to kill somebody. By the start of my senior year, I have taken so many sociology classes, I'm only a few credits shy of a degree. Maury suggests I try an honors thesis. Me, I ask, what would I write about? What interests you, he says. 
We bat it back and forth until we finally settle on, of all things, sports. I begin a year-long project on how football in America has become ritualistic, almost a religion, an opiate for the masses. I have no idea that this is training for my future career. I only know it gives me another once-a-week session with Maury. And with this help, by spring, I have a 112-page thesis, researched, footnoted, documented, and neatly bound in black leather. I show it to Maury with the pride of a little leaguer rounding the bases on his first home run. Congratulations, Maury says. I grin as he leaps through it, and I glance around his office. The shelves of books, the hardwood floor, the throw rug, the couch. I think to myself that I have sat just about everywhere there is to sit in this room. I don't know, Mitch, Maury muses, adjusting his glasses as he reads. With work like this, we may have to get you back here for grad school. Yeah, right, I say. I snicker, but the idea is momentarily appealing. Part of me is scared of leaving school. Part of me wants to go desperately. Tension of opposites. I watch Maury as he reads my thesis and wonder what the big world will be like out there. The Audiovisual, Part 2 The Nightline show had done a follow-up story on Maury, partly because the reception for the first show had been so strong. This time, when the cameramen and producers came through the door, they already felt like family, and Ted Koppel himself was noticeably warmer. There was no feeling-out process, no interview before the interview. As warm-up, Koppel and Maury exchanged stories about their childhood backgrounds. Koppel spoke of growing up in England. Maury spoke of growing up in the Bronx. Maury wore a long-sleeved blue shirt. It was almost always chilly, even when it was 90 degrees outside. But Koppel removed his jacket and did the interview in shirt and tie, as if Maury were breaking him down one layer at a time. You look fine, Koppel said when the tape began to roll. That's what everybody tells me, Maury said. You sound fine, Koppel said. That's what everybody tells me, said Maury. So how do you know things are going downhill, Koppel asked. Maury sighed. Nobody can know it but me, Ted, but I know it. And as he spoke, it became obvious. He was not waving his hands to make a point as freely as he had in their first conversation. He had trouble pronouncing certain words, the L sound seemed to get caught in his throat. In a few more months, he might no longer speak at all. Here's how my emotions go, Maury told Koppel. When I have people and friends here, I'm very up. The loving relationships maintain me. But there are days when I am depressed. Let me not deceive you. I see certain things going on and I feel a sense of dread. What am I going to do without my hands? What happens when I can't speak? Swallowing, I don't care so much about, so they feed me through a tube, so what? But my voice... My hands? They're such an essential part of me. I talk with my voice. I gesture with my hands. This is how I give to people. Koppel asked, how will you give when you can no longer speak? Maury shrugged. Maybe I'll have everyone ask me yes or no questions. It was such a simple answer that Koppel had to smile. He asked Maury about silence. He mentioned a dear friend Maury had, Maury Stein, who had first sent Maury's aphorisms to the Boston Globe. They'd been together at Brandeis since the early 60s, and now Stein was going deaf. Koppel imagined the two men together one day, one unable to speak, the other unable to hear. What would that be like? We would hold hands, Maury said, and there'll be a lot of love passing between us. Ted, we've had 35 years of friendship. You don't need speech or hearing to feel that. Before the show ended, Maury read Koppel one of the letters he'd received. Since the first Nightline program, there'd been a great deal of mail. One particular letter came from a school teacher in Pennsylvania who taught a special class of nine children. 
every child in the class had suffered the death of a parent. Here's what I sent her back, Maury told Koppel, perching his glasses gingerly on his nose and ears. Dear Barbara, I was very moved by your letter. I feel the work you have done with the children who have lost a parent is very important. I also lost a parent at an early age. Suddenly, with the camera still humming, Maury adjusted the glasses. He stopped, bit his lip, and began to choke up. Tears fell down his nose. He went on. I lost my mother when I was a child, and it was quite a blow to me. I wish I'd had a group like yours, where I would have been able to talk about my sorrows. I would have joined your group because... His voice cracked. Because I was so lonely. Maury Koppel said, that was 70 years ago your mother died. The pain still goes on? You bet, Maury whispered. The Professor He was eight years old. A telegram came from the hospital, and since his father, a Russian immigrant, could not read English, Maury had to break the news, reading his mother's death notice like a student in front of the class. We regret to inform you, he began. On the morning of the funeral, Maury's relatives came down the steps of his tenement building on the poor Lower East Side of Manhattan. The men wore dark suits, the women wore veils. The kids in the neighborhood were going off to school, and as they passed, Maury looked down, ashamed that his classmates would see him this way. One of his aunts, a heavyset woman, grabbed Maury and began to wail, What will become of you? What will you do without your mother? Maury burst into tears. His classmates ran away. At the cemetery, Maury watched as they shoveled dirt into his mother's grave. He tried to recall the tender moments they had shared while she was alive. She had operated a candy store until she got sick, after which she mostly slept or sat by the window, looking frail and weak. Sometimes she would yell out for her son to get her some medicine, and young Maury, playing stickball in the street, would pretend he didn't hear her. In his mind, he believed he could make the illness go away by ignoring it. How else can a child confront death? Maury's father, whom everyone called Charlie, had come to America to escape the Russian army. He worked in the fur business, but was constantly out of a job. Uneducated and barely able to speak English, he was terribly poor, and the family was on public assistance much of the time. Their apartment was a dark, cramped, depressing place behind the candy store. They had no luxuries, no car. Sometimes to make money, Maury and his younger brother David would wash porch steps for a nickel. After their mother's death, the two boys were sent off to a small hotel in the Connecticut woods, where several families shared a large cabin and a communal kitchen. Fresh air might be good for the children, the relatives thought. Maury and David had never seen so much greenery, and they played in the fields. One night after dinner, they went for a walk and it began to rain, and rather than coming in, they splashed around for hours. The next morning, when they awoke, Maury hopped out of bed. Come on, he said to his brother, get up. I can't. What do you mean you can't? David's face was panicked. I, I can't move. He had polio. Of course, the rain did not cause this, but a child Maury's age could not understand that. For a long time, as his brother was taken back and forth to a special medical home, forced to wear braces on his legs, which left him limping, Maury felt responsible. So in the mornings, he went to synagogue by himself because his father was not a religious man, and he stood amongst the swaying men in their long black coats, and he asked God to take care of his dead mother and his sick brother. And in the afternoons, Maury stood at the bottom of the subway steps and hawked magazines turning whatever money he made over to his family to buy food. In the evenings, he watched his father eat in silence, hoping for, but never getting, a show of affection, communication, warmth. At nine years old, young Maury felt as if the weight of a mountain were on his shoulders.
But a saving embrace came into Maury's life the following year. His new stepmother, Ava. She was a short Romanian immigrant with plain features, curly brown hair, and the energy of two women. She had a glow that warmed the otherwise murky atmosphere his father created. She talked when her new husband was silent. She sang songs to the children at night. Maury took comfort in her soothing voice, her school lessons, her strong character. When his brother returned from the medical home, still wearing those leg braces from the polio, the two of them shared a rollaway bed in the kitchen of their apartment, and Ava would kiss them goodnight. Maury waited on those kisses like a puppy waits on milk, and he felt deep down that he had a mother again. There was no escaping their poverty, however. They lived now in the Bronx in a one-bedroom apartment in a red brick building on Tremont Avenue, next to an Italian beer garden where the old men played bocce on summer evenings. Because of the Depression, Maury's father found even less work in the fur business. Sometimes when the family sat at the dinner table, all Ava could put out was bread. What else is there, David would ask. Nothing else, his mother would answer. When she tucked Maury and David into bed, she would sing to them in Yiddish. Even the songs were sad and poor. There was one about a girl trying to sell her cigarettes. The words went, please buy my cigarettes. They are dry, not wet by rain. Take pity on me. Take pity on me. Still, despite their circumstances, Maury was taught to love and to care, and to learn. Ava would accept nothing less than excellence in school because she saw education as the only antidote to their poverty. She herself went to night school to improve her English. Maury's love for education was hatched in her arms. He studied at night by the lamp of the kitchen table, and in the mornings he would go to the synagogue to say Yisker, the memorial prayer for the dead, this for his mother. He did this to keep her memory alive. Incredibly, Maury had been told by his father never to talk about her. Charlie wanted young David to think Ava was his natural mother. It was a terrible burden to Maury. For years, the only evidence he had of his mother was the telegram announcing her death. He'd hidden it the day it arrived, and he would keep it the rest of his life. When Maury was a teenager, his father took him to a fur factory where he worked. This was during the Depression, and the idea was to get Maury a job. He entered the factory and immediately felt as if the walls had closed in around him. The room was dark and hot, the windows covered with filth, and the machines were packed tightly together, churning like train wheels. The fur hairs were flying, creating a thickened air, and the workers, sewing their pelts together, were bent over their needles as the boss marched up and down the rows, screaming for them to go faster, faster. Maury could hardly breathe. He stood there next to his father, frozen with fear, hoping the boss wouldn't scream at him, too. During lunch break, his father took Maury to the boss and pushed him in front of him, asking if there was any work for his son. But there was barely enough work for the adult laborers, and no one was giving it up. For Maury, this was a blessing. He hated the place. He made another vow that he kept to the end of his life. He would never do any work that exploited someone else, and he would never allow himself to make money off the sweat of others. What will you do, Ava would ask him. I don't know, he would say. He ruled out law because he didn't like lawyers, and he ruled out medicine because he couldn't take the sight of blood. What will you do? It was only through default that the best professor I ever had became a teacher. A teacher affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence stops. Henry Adams The fourth Tuesday, we talk about death. Let's begin with this idea, Maury said. Everyone knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. He was in a business-like mood this Tuesday. The subject was death, the first item on my list. Before I arrived, Maury had scribbled a few notes on small white pieces of paper so that he wouldn't forget. His shaky handwriting was now indecipherable to everyone but him. It was almost Labor Day, and through the office window I could see the spinach-colored hedges of the backyard 
and hear the yells of children playing down the street, their last week of freedom before school began. Back in Detroit, the newspaper strikers were gearing up for a huge holiday demonstration to show the solidarity of unions against management. On the plane ride in, I had read about a woman who had shot her husband and two daughters as they lay sleeping, claiming she was protecting them from, quote, the bad people. In California, the lawyers in the O.J. Simpson trial were becoming huge celebrities. Here in Maury's office, life went on one precious day at a time. Now we sat together a few feet from the newest addition to the house, an oxygen machine. It was small and portable, about knee-high. On some nights, when he couldn't get enough air to swallow, Maury attached the long plastic tubing to his nose, clamping on his nostrils like a leech. I hated the idea of Maury connected to a machine of any kind, and I tried not to look at it as Maury spoke. Everyone knows they're going to die, he said again, but nobody believes it. If we did, we would do things differently. So, we kid ourselves about death, I said. Yes, he said, but there's a better approach to know you're going to die, and to be prepared for it at any time. That's better. That way you can actually be more involved in your life while you're living. How can you ever be prepared to die, I asked. Maury said, do what the Buddhists do. Every day have a little bird on your shoulder that asks, is today the day? Am I ready? Am I doing all I need to do? Am I being the person I want to be? Maury turned his head to his shoulder as if the bird were there now. Is today the day I die? he said. Maury borrowed freely from all religions. He was born Jewish, but became agnostic when he was a teenager, partly because of all that had happened to him as a child. He enjoyed some of the philosophies of Buddhism and Christianity, and he still felt at home culturally in Judaism. He was a religious mutt, which made him even more open to the students he taught over the years, and the things he was saying in his final months on earth seemed to transcend all religious differences. Death has a way of doing that. The truth is, Mitch, he said, once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. I nodded. I'm going to say it again, he said. Once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. He smiled and I realized what he was doing. He was making sure I absorbed this point without embarrassing me by asking. It was part of what made him a good teacher. Did you think much about death before you got sick, I asked? No. Maury smiled. I was like everyone else. I once told a friend of mine in a moment of exuberance, I'm going to be the healthiest old man you ever met. How old were you, I asked. In my sixties. So you were optimistic. Why not, he said. Like I told you, no one really believes they're going to die. But everyone knows someone who has died, I said. Why is it so hard to think about dying? Because, Maury continued, most of us walk around as if we're sleepwalking. We really don't experience the world fully because we're half asleep doing things we automatically think we have to do. And facing death changes all that, I asked. Oh, yes, Maury said. You strip away all that stuff and you focus on the essentials. When you realize you're going to die, you see everything much differently. He sighed. Learn how to die and you learn how to live. I noticed that he quivered now when he moved his hands. His glasses hung around his neck. And when he lifted them to his eyes, they slid around his temples as if he were trying to put them on someone else in the dark. I reached over to help guide them onto his ears. Thank you. Maury whispered. He smiled when my hand brushed up against his head. The slightest human contact was immediate joy. Mitch, can I tell you something? Of course, I said. You might not like it. Why not? Well, the truth is, if you really listen to that bird on your shoulder, if you accept that you can die at any time, then you might not be as ambitious as you are. I forced a small grin. 
The things you spend so much time on, Maury said, all this work you do, it might not seem so important. You might have to make room for some more spiritual things. Spiritual things, I said. You hate that word, don't you, Maury said, spiritual. You think it's touchy-feely stuff. Well, I said. He tried to wink, a bad try, and I broke down and laughed. Mitch, he continued laughing along. Even I don't know what spiritual development really means, but I do know we're deficient in some way. We're too involved in materialistic things, and they don't satisfy us. The loving relationships we have, the universe around us, we take these things for granted. He nodded toward the window with the sunshine streaming in. You see that? You can go out there, outside, any time. You can run up and down the block and go crazy. I can't do that. I can't go out. I can't run. I can't be out there without fear of getting sick. But you know what? I appreciate that window more than you do. Appreciate it, I said. Yes, I look out that window every day. I notice the change in the trees, how strong the wind is blowing. It's as if I can see time actually passing through that window. Because I know my time is almost done, I'm drawn to nature as if I'm seeing it for the first time. He stopped, and for a moment we both just looked out that window. I tried to see what he saw. I tried to see time and seasons, my life passing in slow motion. Maury dropped his head slightly and curled it towards his shoulder. Is it today, little bird, he asked. Is it today? Letters from around the world kept coming to Maury, thanks to the nightline appearances. He would sit when he was up to it and dictate the responses to friends and family who gathered for their letter-writing sessions. One Sunday, when his sons Rob and John were home, they all gathered in the living room. Maury sat in his wheelchair, his skinny legs under a blanket. When he got cold, one of his helpers draped a nylon jacket over his shoulders. What's the first letter? Maury said. A colleague read a note from a woman named Nancy, who had lost her mother to ALS. She wrote to say how much she had suffered through the loss, and how she knew that Maury must be suffering too. All right, Maury said when the reading was completed. He shut his eyes. Let's start by saying, Dear Nancy, you touched me very much with your story about your mother, and I understand what you went through. There is sadness and suffering on both parts. Grieving has been good for me, and I hope it has been good for you also. Rob, his son, said, You might want to change that last line, Dad. Maury thought for a second and said, You're right. How about, I hope you can find the healing power in grieving. Is that better? Rob nodded. And add thank you, Maury, Maury said. Another letter was read from a woman named Jane, who was thanking him for his inspiration on the Nightline program. She referred to him as a prophet. That's a high compliment, said a colleague. A prophet. Maury made a face. He obviously didn't agree with the assessment. Let's thank her for her high praise, Maury said, and tell her I'm glad my words meant something to her. And don't forget to sign, thank you, Maury. There was a letter from a man in England who had lost his mother and asked Maury to help him contact her through the spiritual world. There was a letter from a couple who wanted to drive to Boston to meet him. There was a long letter from a former graduate student who wrote about her life after the university. It told of a murder-suicide and three stillborn births. It told of a mother who died from ALS. It expressed fear that she, the daughter, would also contract the disease. It went on and on, two pages, three pages, four pages. Maury sat through the long, grim tale. When it was finally finished, he said softly, Well, what do we answer? The group was quiet. Finally, Rob said, How about, thanks for your long letter? Everyone laughed, and Maury looked at his son and beamed. The newspaper near his chair has a photo of a Boston baseball player who is smiling after pitching a shutout. Of all the diseases, I think to myself, Maury gets one named after an athlete. 
You remember Lou Gehrig, I ask? I remember him in the stadium saying goodbye, Maury says. So you remember the famous line? Which one? Come on, I say, Lou Gehrig, pride of the Yankees, the speech that echoes over the loudspeakers. Remind me, Maury says, do the speech. Through the open window, I hear the sound of a garbage truck. Although it's hot, Maury is wearing long sleeves with a blanket over his legs, his skin pale. The disease owns him. I raise my voice and do the Gehrig imitation, where the words bounce off the stadium walls. Today, I feel like, 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 the luckiest man, 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 on the face of the earth. Maury closes his eyes and nods slowly. Yeah, well, I didn't say that. The fifth Tuesday, we talk about family. It was the first week in September, back to school week, and after 35 consecutive autumns, my old professor did not have a class waiting for him on a college campus. Boston was teeming with students, double parked on side streets, unloading trunks, and here was Maury in his study. It seemed wrong, like those football players who finally retire and have to face that first Sunday at home watching on TV, thinking, I could still do that. I've learned from dealing with those players that it's best to leave them alone when their old seasons come around. Don't say anything. But then, I didn't need to remind Maury of his dwindling time. For our taped conversations, we had switched from handheld microphones, because it was too difficult now for Maury to hold anything that long, and now we use lavalier kind popular with TV newspeople. You can clip these onto a collar or a lapel. Of course, since Maury only wore soft cotton shirts that hung loosely on his ever-shrinking frame, the microphone sagged and flopped, and I had to reach over and adjust it frequently. Maury seemed to enjoy this because it brought me closer to him, in hugging range, and his need for physical affection was stronger than ever. When I leaned in, I heard his wheezing breath and his weak coughing, and he smacked his lips softly before he swallowed. Well, my friend, he said, what are we talking about today? How about family, I said. Family. He molded over for a moment. Well, you see mine all around me. He nodded to photos on his bookshelves of Maury as a child with his grandmother, Maury as a young man with his brother David, Maury with his wife Charlotte, Maury with his two sons, Rob, a journalist in Tokyo, and John, a computer expert in Boston. I think, Maury said, in light of what we've been talking about all these weeks, family becomes even more important. The fact is, there is no foundation, no secure ground, upon which people may stand today if it isn't the family. It's become quite clear to me, as I've been sick, if you don't have the support and love and caring and concern that you get from a family, you don't have much at all. Love is so supremely important. As our great poet Alden said, love each other or perish. Love each other or perish, I wrote it down. Alden said that, I said. Love each other or perish, Maury said again. It's good, no? And so true. Without love, we are birds with broken wings. Say I was divorced or living alone or had no children. This disease, what I'm going through, would be so much harder. I'm not sure I could do it. Sure, people come visit, friends, associates, but it's not the same as having someone who will not leave. It's not the same as having someone whom you know has an eye on you, is watching you the whole time. This is part of what a family is about. Not just love, but letting others know there's someone who is watching out for them. It's what I miss so much when my mother died, what I call your spiritual security, knowing that your family will be there watching out for you. Nothing else will give you that. Not money, not fame. Maury shot me a look. Not work, he added. Raising a family was one of those issues on my little list, 
things you want to get right before it's too late. I told Maury about my generation's dilemma with having children, how we often saw them as tying us down, making us into those parent things that we did not want to be. I admitted to some of these emotions myself. Yet when I looked at Maury, I wondered if I were in his shoes about to die and I had no family, no children. Would the emptiness be unbearable? He had raised two sons to be loving and caring, and like Maury, they were not shy with their affection. Had he so desired, they would have dropped everything they were doing to be with their father every minute of his final months. But that was not what he wanted. Do not stop your lives, he told them. Otherwise, this disease will have ruined three of us instead of one. In this way, even as he was dying, Maury showed respect for his children's worlds. Little wonder that when they sat with him, there was a waterfall of affection, lots of kisses and jokes, and crouching by the side of the bed, holding hands. Whenever people ask me about having children or not having children, Maury said, I never tell them what to do. He looked at a photo of his oldest son. I simply say, there's no experience like having children. That's all. There is no substitute for it. You cannot do it with a friend. You cannot do it with a lover. If you want the experience of having complete responsibility for another human being and to learn how to love and bond in the deepest way, then you should have children. So would you do it again, I asked Maury. I glanced at the photo. Rob was kissing Maury on the forehead and Maury was laughing with his eyes closed. Would I do it again, he said to me, looking surprised. Mitch, I would not have missed that experience for anything, even though... He swallowed now and put the picture in his lap, even though there was a painful price to pay. Because you'll be leaving them, I said. Because I'll be leaving them soon. He pulled his lips together, closed his eyes, and I watched the first teardrop fall down the side of his cheek. And now, he whispered, you talk. Me? Your family. I know about your parents. I met them years ago at graduation. You have a sister, too, right? Yes, I said. Older, yes. Older, I said. And one brother, right? I nodded. Younger? Younger, I said. Like me, Maury said. I have a younger brother. Like you, I said. He also came to your graduation, your brother, didn't he? Maury said. I blinked, and in my mind I saw us all there. Sixteen years earlier, the hot sun, the blue robes, squinting as we put our arms around each other and posed for instamatic photos. Someone saying, one, two, three, smile. What is it, Maury said, noticing my sudden quiet. What's on your mind? Nothing, I said, changing the subject. Now the truth is, I do indeed have a brother, a blonde-haired, hazel-eyed, two years younger brother, who looks so unlike me or my dark-haired sister that we used to tease him by claiming strangers had left him as a baby on our doorstep. And one day we'd say, they're coming back to get you. He cried when we said this, but we said it just the same. He grew up the way many youngest children grow up, pampered, adored, and inwardly tortured. He dreamed of being an actor or a singer. He reenacted TV shows at the dinner table, playing every part, his bright smile practically jumping through his lips. I was the good student. He was the bad. I was obedient. He broke the rules. I stayed away from drugs and alcohol. He tried everything you could ingest. He moved to Europe not long after high school preferring the more casual lifestyle he found there. Yet he remained the family favorite. When he visited home in his wild and funny presence, I often felt stiff and conservative. As different as we were, I reasoned that our fates would shoot in opposite directions once we hit adulthood. I was right in all ways but one. 
From the day my uncle died, I believed that I would suffer a similar death, an untimely disease that would take me out. So I worked at a feverish pace, and I braced myself for cancer. I could feel its breath. I knew it was coming. I waited for it the way a condemned man waits for the executioner. And I was right. It came. But it missed me. It struck my brother. The same type of cancer as my uncle had had, the pancreas, a rare form. And so the youngest of our family, with the blonde hair and the hazel eyes, had the chemotherapy and the radiation. His hair fell out. His face went gaunt as a skeleton. It's supposed to be me, I thought. But my brother was not me, and he was not my uncle. He was a fighter, and had been since his youngest days, when we wrestled in the basement and he actually bit through my shoe until I screamed in pain and let him go. And so he fought back. He battled the disease in Spain, where he lived, with the aid of an experimental drug that was not and is still not available in the United States. He flew all over Europe for treatments. After five years of this, the drug appeared to chase the cancer into remission. That was the good news. The bad news was, my brother did not want me around, not me, nor anyone in our family. Much as we tried to call and visit, he held us at bay, insisting this fight was something he needed to do by himself. Months would pass without a word from him. Messages on his answering machine would go without reply. I was ripped with guilt for what I felt I should be doing for him, and fueled with anger for his denying us the right to do it. So once again, I dove into work. I worked because I could control it. I worked because work was sensible and responsive, and each time I would call my brother's apartment in Spain and get that answering machine, him speaking in Spanish, another sign of how far apart we've drifted, I would hang up and I would work some more. Perhaps this is one reason I was drawn to Maury. He let me be where my brother would not. Looking back, perhaps Maury knew this all along. It is a winter in my childhood on a snow-packed hill in our suburban neighborhood. My brother and I are on the sled, him on top, me on the bottom. I feel his chin on my shoulder and his feet on the backs of my knees. The sled rumbles on icy patches beneath us. We pick up speed as we descend the hill. Car! Somebody yells. We see it coming down the street to our left. We scream and try to steer away, but the runners don't move. The driver slams his horn and hits his brakes, and we do what all kids do. We jump off. In our hooded parkas, we roll like logs down the cold, wet snow, thinking the next thing to touch us will be the hard rubber of a car tire. We're yelling, ah! And we're tingling with fear, turning over and over, the world upside down, right side up, upside down. And then, nothing. We stop rolling and catch our breath and wipe the dripping snow from our faces. The driver turns down the street, wagging his finger. We are safe. Our sled has thudded quietly into a snowbank, and our friends are slapping us now, saying, cool, and you could have died. I grin at my brother, and we are united by childish pride. That wasn't so hard, we think, and we are ready to take on death again. The sixth Tuesday, we talk about emotions. I walk past the mountain laurels and the Japanese maple, up the bluestone steps of Maury's house. The white rain gutter hung like a lid over the doorway. I rang the bell and was greeted not by Connie, but by Maury's wife, Charlotte, a beautiful gray-haired woman who spoke in a lilting voice. She was not often at home when I came by. She continued working at MIT, as Maury wished, and I was surprised this morning to see her. Maury's having a bit of a hard time today, she said. She stared over my shoulder for a moment, then moved towards the kitchen. I'm sorry, I said. No, no, he'll be happy to see you, she said quickly. I I'm sure. She stopped in the middle of the sentence, turning her head slightly, listening for something. Then she continued, I'm sure he'll feel better when he knows you're here. I lifted up the bags from the market. 
my normal food supply, I said jokingly, and she seemed to smile and fret at the same time. There's already so much food, she said. He hasn't eaten any from last time. This took me by surprise. He hasn't eaten any, I asked. She opened the refrigerator and I saw familiar containers of chicken salad, vermicelli, vegetables, stuffed squash, all things I had bought from Maury. She opened the freezer and there was even more. Maury can't eat most of the food, she said. It's too hard for him to swallow. He has to eat soft things and liquid drinks now. But he never said anything, I said. Charlotte smiled. He doesn't want to hurt your feelings. It wouldn't have hurt my feelings, I said. I just wanted to help in some way. I mean, I just wanted to bring him something. You are bringing him something, she said. He looks forward to your visits. He talks about having to do this project with you, how he has to concentrate and put the time aside. I think it's giving him a good sense of purpose. Again, she gave that faraway look, the tuning in something from somewhere else look. I knew Maury's nights were becoming difficult, that he didn't sleep through them, and that meant Charlotte often did not sleep through them either. Sometimes Maury would lie awake coughing for hours, would take that long to get the phlegm from his throat. There were healthcare workers now staying through the night, and all those visitors during the day, former students, fellow professors, meditation teachers, tramping in and out of the house. On some days, Maury had a half dozen visitors, and they were often there when Charlotte returned from work. She handled it with patience, even though all these outsiders were soaking up her precious minutes with Maury. A sense of purpose, she continued. Yes, that's good, you know. I hope so, I said. I helped put the new food inside the refrigerator. The kitchen counter had all kinds of notes, messages, information, medical instructions. The table held more pill bottles than ever. Celestone for his asthma, Ativan to help him sleep, Naproxen for infections, along with a powdered milk mix and laxatives. From down the hall, we heard the sound of a door open. Maybe he's available, Charlotte said. Let me go check. She glanced again at my food, and I felt suddenly ashamed. All these reminders of things that Maury would never enjoy. The small horrors of his illness were growing, and when I finally sat down with Maury, he was coughing more than usual, a dry, dusty cough that shook his chest and made his head jerk forward. After one violent surge, he stopped, closed his eyes, and took a breath. I sat quietly because I thought he was recovering from his exertion. Is the tape on? He said suddenly, his eyes still closed. Yes, yes, I quickly said, pressing down the play and record buttons. What I'm doing now, he continued, his eyes still closed, is detaching myself from the experience. Detaching yourself, I said. Yes, detaching myself. And this is important, not just for someone like me who is dying, but for someone like you who is perfectly healthy. Learn to detach. He opened his eyes, he exhaled. You know what the Buddhists say? Don't cling to things because everything is impermanent. But wait, I said, aren't you always talking about experiencing life, all the good emotions, all the bad ones? Yes. Well, how can you do that if you're detached? Ah, you're thinking, Mitch, he said. But detachment doesn't mean you don't let the experience penetrate you. On the contrary, you let it penetrate you fully. That's how you're able to leave it. I'm lost, I said. Take any emotion, love for a woman or grief for a loved one, or what I'm going through, fear and pain from a deadly illness. If you hold back on the emotions, if you don't allow yourself to go all the way through them, then you can never get to being detached. You're too busy being afraid. You're afraid of the pain. You're afraid of the grief. You're afraid of the vulnerability that loving entails. But by throwing yourself into these emotions, by allowing yourself to dive in all the way, over your head even, you experience them fully and completely. You know what pain is. You know what love is. You know what grief is. And only then can you say, all right, I've experienced that emotion. 
I recognize that emotion. Now I need to detach from that emotion for a moment. Maury stopped and looked me over, perhaps to make sure I was getting this right. I know you think this is just about dying, he said, but it's like I keep telling you, when you learn how to die, you learn how to live. Maury talked about his most fearful moments, when he felt his chest locked in heaving surges, or when he wasn't sure where his next breath would come from. These were horrifying times, he said, and his first emotions were horror, fear, anxiety. But once he recognized the feel of these emotions, their texture, their moisture, the shiver down the back, the quick flash of heat that crosses your brain, then he was able to say, okay, this is fear, step away from it, step away. I thought about how often this was needed in everyday life, how we feel lonely, sometimes to the point of tears, but we don't let those tears come because we're not supposed to cry. Or how we feel a surge of love for a partner, but we don't say anything because we're frozen with the fear of what those words might do to the relationship. Maury's approach was exactly the opposite. Turn on the faucet. Wash yourself with the emotion. It won't hurt you. It will only help. If you let the fear inside, if you pull it on like a familiar shirt, then you can say to yourself, all right, it's just fear. I don't have to let it control me. I see it for what it is. Same for loneliness. You let go, let the tears flow, feel it completely, but eventually be able to say, all right, that was my moment with loneliness. I'm not afraid of feeling lonely. But now I'm going to put that loneliness aside and know that there are other emotions in the world and I'm going to experience them as well. Detach, Maury said again. He closed his eyes, then coughed. Then he coughed again. Then he coughed again, more loudly. Suddenly he was half choking, the congestion in his lungs seemingly teasing him, jumping halfway up, then dropping back down, stealing his breath. He was gagging, then hacking violently, and he shook his hands in front of him. With his eyes closed, shaking those hands, he appeared almost possessed, and I felt my forehead break into a sweat. I instinctively pulled him forward and slapped the back of his shoulders, and he pushed a tissue to his mouth and spit out a wad of phlegm. The coughing stopped, and Maury dropped back into the foam pillows and sucked in air. You okay, you all right, I said, trying to hide my fear. I'm okay, Maury whispered, raising a shaky finger. Just wait a minute. We sat there silently until his breathing returned to normal. I felt the perspiration on my scalp. He asked me to close the window. The breeze was making him cold, he said. I didn't mention that it was 80 degrees outside. Finally, in a whisper, he said, I know how I want to die. I waited in silence. I want to die serenely, peacefully, not like what just happened. And this is where detachment comes in. If I die in the middle of a coughing spell like I just had, I need to be able to detach from the horror. I need to say, this is my moment. I don't want to leave the world in a state of fright. I want to know what's happening. Accept it. Get to a peaceful place and let go. Do you understand? I nodded. Don't let go yet, I added quickly. Maury forced a smile. No, not yet. We still have work to do. Do you believe in reincarnation, I asked. Perhaps, he says. Well, what would you come back as? If I had my choice, he says, a gazelle. A gazelle? Yes, so graceful, so fast. A gazelle? Maury smiles at me. You think that's strange? I study his shrunken frame, the loose clothes, the feet wrapped in socks that rest stiffly on foam rubber cushions, unable to move like a prisoner in leg irons. I see a gazelle racing across the desert. No, I say to Maury, I don't think that's strange at all.